Folks, welcome inside the studios of Power Talk, located at 3733 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Please go to our website, powertalk.live, download our free app, and stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, The Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, The Jake Feinberg Show. And we're delighted you could make us part of your day today because uh, we have one of the most amazing writers. It's always very hard to describe improvisational instrumental music, Um, uh, but we have a gentleman who uh, was able to manifest this stuff in an auditory fashion and then be able to cogently write it out so that it made sense. He's been a promoter of the America's only true art form for half a century at least, and um, was uh, deeply and intimately involved uh, with uh, a gentleman that I'm doing, uh, blessed to be doing a film documentary on, Stan Getz. Uh, Dan Morgenstern, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Thank you. Glad to be with you. I, I have done f- over four dozen interviews for this documentary. I know the classic line from Zoot Sims, uh, he was a nice bunch of guys, or he was a bunch of nice guys. And um, I understand that he was a melodic genius and had incredible time feel and huge ears. But I really want to talk to you about Stan the Man. And one thing that, I, that, that caught my attention <clears throat> with Stan throughout this whole thing is that he was a very loyal person. And you talk about this... I was watching a video of you talking about Stan and there's this pivotal period where um, he had been overseas in Sweden for quite some time and Coltrane, the modal period of jazz was taking over train and Sonny Ornette, miles. They were starting to elevate and Stan being a competitor and obviously very gifted, wanted to come back into the fray. And I think, you were talking about this time when he returned uh, to the States and you were the only effing writer to greet him. Was it in that, was that the, can you? Well, yes, this, yeah. Uh, it uh, was when he came back from uh, Scandinavia. He was in Sweden, he married a Swedish girl, and he also spent a lot of time in Denmark. And uh, when he came back, uh, there was a uh, an announcement that went out. I, I don't know who the press agent was or anything, that he would be arriving. In those days, people still came in on ships rather than on planes. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, being, uh, <laughs> That's right. At the time, I was with Metronome Magazine, and uh, which was at one time, you know, the only competitions at Downbeat put it. Went downhill and eventually died. I had the dubious distinction of being its last editor. But anyway, I was the only person who showed up to meet Stan, and he never forgot that. From then on, we were friends. And uh, as you said before, you know, he was loyal. That's an example, I think, of his loyalty. He never forgot that. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, he was... a misunderstood guy i think uh, a lot of people didn't really you know uh, understand what he was all about but among other things of course he was a musical genius but uh, i also happen to like him a lot <laughs> no and you know i mean i know that you as most people were uh, being that he was do you do you consider him uh, could you relate him to a painter or a poet or, you know, I mean, everyone, I've gotten every artist from Van Gogh to, to, and then people have also considered him Einstein, called him Einstein. I mean, what did, what, where, where does he fall with you? Can you, can you peg him with, with um, an analogous artist? Well, if I were to, you know, it, 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 it it's hard to do really meaningful analogies with another art form, but uh, probably uh, if I was to pick a painter, maybe I would pick Monet, you know, and uh, uh, a poet. I don't know. That's hard. You say, Mo- you say, Mo- you say Monet? Like Monet? Yeah. 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 Why, why Monet? Why, uh, why Monet? Because... Uh, you know, Stan was a virtuoso. He he mastered the the, the saxophone, and uh, 
Monet was a was a virtuosic painter. Those beautiful things he did with uh, you know with the water lilies and all that. You know, and he he, he was a master with the brush, just like. Uh, and there's a kind of poetry to his paintings, and there's a, Stan could be a very poetic player, you know. He had a beautiful sense of melody. Uh, I know that uh, one time on a blindfold test with Miles Davis, you know, they played a Stan Getz record for him, and he said, uh, you know, he said he admired Stan. He said he has so much patience with melodies, you know, and uh, that's how, for instance, you know, the, the bossa nova stuff that he did became so successful because of his melodic ingenuity. You know, that was uh, that was it. What was but, it? Uh, yeah. it, it yeah. It's, Go ahead. It's hard to find analogies with the, with other art forms. Prior to him coming back to the states, were you in awe of him, and that's why you liked him, or were you genuinely? Friend, you got to like you liked him as a person, and we're not. When did yeah. that awe fall away for you? Could you talk yeah. about a story when you actually bonded with him personally? Well, I didn't really know Stan personally. To I, I had seen him. I remember the first time I saw him live. I, you know, already of course I knew him from from records, but uh, in those days, this would have been around 1950 or so. Birdland had Monday night sessions you know and this was one particular one where they had stan and lee Conitz opposite each other each with the rhythm section and that was the first time i'd seen him live and uh, you know i uh, was very very much impressed with him uh, which i had already been from recordings but uh, uh but we didn't really get to know each other until uh, that uh, return from scandinavia you know that was uh, I had uh, uh, one uh, interlude with him uh, personally the first time we got personally involved. Uh, after I got out of the Army, I went to Brandeis University on the GI Bill, and at that time, George Ween had uh, the Storyville Club in Boston, which is a great nightclub, and the uh, university had some, you know, funds for uh, bringing in artists uh, for concerts and things. And they'd done a lot of classical stuff, but they hadn't done any jazz. Uh, you know, let, let, let's get some jazz in here. So uh, when, uh, when uh, Stan was uh, at, at Story, I spoke to George and I said, you know, would it be okay when you have somebody at the club, you know, if 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 we brought them to uh, uh, to the campus, and he said, sure, that's fine. You just make a don't mind me. I have nothing to do with it. If it's okay with the artists, it's fine. Any day, but uh, but Sunday. Sunday he had uh, afternoon jams, so he didn't want to let guys go on a, on a Sunday. So I, I I I talked to Stan, and he was looking. You know, the first thing he asked was how much, how much were we willing to to pay? He had a nice quintet at the time, and uh, so we brought him in. And uh, he was uh, at that time, you know, I mean, he played beautifully. The concert was a big success, but uh, there wasn't very much personal involvement. I mean, he thanked me, and uh, he uh, was very, he was friendly, but. Uh, we didn't really, you know, connect in any particularly, uh, you know, intense way. So it really wasn't until that uh, return from Scandinavia. But after that, I, I really got to see a lot of him. And uh, I was fortunate to visit him at this beautiful house that he had uh, up on the Hudson, uh, which had once belonged to George Gershwin. You got the press release because you were you were really that that quintet up in 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 uh, Brandeis. That was Jimmy Rainey, Rainey and uh, Bill Crow and those cats. Is that what that was? 
It, it it wasn't a great group, you know, the one that actually recorded sure. it, uh, in in Boston with Tiny Kine and and and, and Rainey and Teddy Kodak and but no, that wasn't it. It was a little earlier than that. Uh, I think uh, I think Bobby Bookmeyer was with him. Oh, I dig, uh, I dig. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is so, so interesting. You know, uh, I mean, this is so because I know in reading the book. I mean, I was blown away for, by the fact that you actually were at the opening of Birdland. I mean, that to me is such a cool thing. Uh, and, you know, just for the audience, because listen, this movie is going to take off. If it takes off, it's going to take off because Stan was a star and he was a beautiful. Could you talk about what made him? Obviously, he was. A gene, he was an, a virtuoso and he was so melodic like I read these quotes you were talking about everything he was singing all the time always singing you know in, through his horn but can you talk about you know sort of the the who he like Stan the man what made him the sort of Marlon Brando or the James Dean of the 50s <laughs> a lot of people don't even realize he was a be, he was a monster bebop player but the person Stan gets he was a complicated cat. C- can you break down? He was. Can you can you break down and from your perspective? He was he, he was complicated personally, and you know there were people who didn't uh, really understand him too well. And you mentioned Jude Sims' famous quote: "He was a nice bunch of guys," you know. Um, but uh, he, if there was one thing uh, about him that remained a constant was his dedication to the music. I mean, I saw him often and, you know, he never made a bad record and I never heard him uh, perform in any other way than, uh, you know, than perfection. He was, he was just a master musician and it wasn't only the melodic stuff. It was also the, the speed and the control. I mean, stuff like that. Thing he recorded Parker Fifty One, which is a version of Cherokee. I mean, Jesus, boy, that's something. Yeah. Uh, well, and the stuff he did he, uh, for musicians. He was yeah. For music- he was very consistent about that. He and and as you know from the book that you mentioned, uh, what's the author's name? It's a Don, Donald Donald Ma- Donald Magan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, he he mentions that Stan said that he was you know he never he was never sober when he uh, when he reported, but you know I mean I, I, that may well be true. Maybe he did say that. But for instance, the uh, the session with Jimmy, you know, with Jimmy Rolls, there was no indication that Stan was stoned or anything like that. He was in perfect control. And these were mostly things that he was recording songs for a couple of Wayne Shorter things and so on. First time, you know, and boy, it, it was just a wonderful demonstration of his musicianship. I did the notes for that LP, originally LP, later CD, so uh, I remember it very well. But the, the thing about Stan also was that he was an impulsive person i'll give you one <laughs> anecdote which uh, uh was kind of you know uh, it's kind of fun but uh, <laughs> uh it was at the london house in chicago the london house was uh, one of the nicest jazz clubs ever because it wasn't only a place for good music but it also had wonderful food it was a first class restaurant they specialized in roast beef and steaks and uh on the night i came in to, to hear stan it was his opening night um there was a party right in the front row you know the tables were up to right in front of the bandstand bandstand was elevated a bit but the tables in the, in the front row were very close to the bandstand so uh, there was a noisy party right in front of the bandstand. Uh, party of about four or five people. I don't remember the number exactly, but uh, they were loud. You know, 
So Stan kind of politely, uh, a couple of numbers in, asked them if they would please, you know, uh, be quiet. You know, people want to listen to the music, and would you please? He said politely, you know, didn't work. It didn't work. So <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> he put out one leg, put out his foot, and put his shoe right in the plate of one of the people, right on top of the stake. Mm-hmm. Boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was a, uh, you know, uh, pretty uh, daring thing to do in terms of, uh, of what the club owner might think. Now, the club owner was George Marienthal. There were two Marienthal brothers who ran the club, and uh, he did not fire Stan or anything like that. He kind of sympathized <laughs> with what he had done. And the, the people, of course, were incensed, but uh, he just didn't, you know, he canceled their check and asked them to leave, and that was it. But uh, that was Stan, you know, he was, uh, he was an impulsive guy. What what and I mean? There this many is many musicians who would have done that. <laughs> no, I mean I that that is that is a, a t- I mean I when I interviewed uh you 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 must know Seymour Red Press right? Yes, sure. Okay, yeah. so Seymour grew up with Stan, uh, in the East Bronx, and I mean you know I I was how much of his upbringing do you think affected his psychological state because he was on the road with tea garden first of all his parents were very poor his dad could never hold a a gig he was supporting Uh the family in ninth grade i mean can you talk a a little bit about Uh, how that shaped his impulsivity and also also because i mean he i I mean seymour told me that at the he took him to see um oh who was it bob freeman or some horn player I forget who it was. I can't remember the name, but um, oh no, I'm sorry. Seymour took this guy Freeman to see Stan, and Stan played. Was it Bud Freeman? Bud Freeman, thank you. And 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 yeah. and, and after the gig, um, uh, Seymour, you know, he had not seen Stan for a few years. Uh, he was a little bit older when he was in Bill Shiner's uh, saxophone quintet, but uh, he he uh, Seymour went up to Stan and he goes. Get that mf'er out of here. He hates me. I know he hates me. I know he hates me. And it was the farthest thing from the truth. I mean, Freeman was floored by Stan. And it was this sort of, it was this paranoia and lack of confidence. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that upbringing and how it molded his psyche. Yeah, well, I, you know, I don't know much about his uh, his early childhood or anything like that. I know that he got a scholarship. <laughs> he never pursued the bassoon very far, but uh, he was, you know, he was a, a, a talent from the very beginning. And I know he went on the road with Jack Teagarden when he was about barely, he was underage because Teagarden had to sign a, uh, a document that that he would be his guardian. That's right. The truth. To imagine That's right. Jack Teagarden, you know, Jack <laughs> was a great trombone player, but he wasn't exactly the most perfect guardian for a young kid. And uh, what Stan told me about uh, about Jack was the first thing he said very briefly. He said Jack taught me to drink. You know, <laughs> he taught me how to bend my right arm. Yeah, no, I mean, the, yeah. the, the truant officer, the truant officers had to go track him down. And then T Garden said, "No, he's staying with me, and I'll I'll be his guardian." Uh, yeah, but yeah. I mean, this you said he was. Uh, this is I've heard this from you a couple times now. He was hard to understand because can you give the f- so on the bandstand these these uh, people are getting drunk in the front row and he steps on their stake, okay. On the flip side, yeah. well, they weren't getting drunk; they were just noisy. Sure, but talking. I know there was they were it was talking very right. loudly right through the air. But can you can you annoying. Can, can you get when you talk about he was hard to understand? Can you talk about the tender side of Stan, whether at Irvington or a time when because he was schizophrenic, he had a bipolar disorder that was never really diagnosed, and I'm trying to get at this idea of saying well. beyond 
beyond the 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 the, the virtuosity, all right, setting aside the virtuosity of his musical ability, how about the, the 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 love that he that you guys developed after you showed up after his return from 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 Denmark in sixty in roughly fifty nine sixty, the softer side of Stan. 61. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 he obviously uh, his children were very fond of him. You know, uh, Beverly and, and and Steve. You know, both speak very warmly of their father. You know, and we have their we can see in photographs. You know, and they were little bit together. And uh, obviously, he was uh, a good family man in that sense because he hadn't had a very good childhood himself and he could be uh, very friendly and uh, you know warm but he could also be you know uh, I remember one time uh, in Chicago also I mentioned the London house uh, uh, he and the guys that was when he had Chick Corea in the band and they came over to uh, my apartment just to hang out and listen to records. And uh, Stan had a habit he called Chick Chicky Baby, and Chick <laughs> obviously didn't like that, but he consistently called him that, <laughs> you know, even though Chick obviously did not like it. Mm. But, you know, I mean, that was he was teasing him a little bit. Uh, as far as being, uh, you know, I can't think of any particular incident that would demonstrate his kindness to people, but uh, I can tell you that he was in a way that you wouldn't expect, uh, although it's perfectly understandable considering his upbringing, uh, that he was insecure. Because one time, this is uh, back uh, now, I'm, I'm already with at Rutgers with the Institute of Jazz Studies, so it had to be, had to be in the 70s. Uh, he called me and he said, Dan, he said, uh, they have offered me a teaching uh, gig at Stanford University. Uh, you know, and he said, what am I going to do? I didn't even finish high school. How can I, you know, how, how can I teach college kids? I said to him, Stan, you're staying yes, Jesus, you know, you, uh, these kids will hang on every word you, you have to say, and all you have to do is talk about music, and that you know, you know, uh, backwards and forwards but but he was really you know he was really insecure about about doing that he he did take the job and he did do it and of course he did fine you know but uh, it's just an indication of uh, how insecure he was about his uh, you know his uh, his education uh, when it came to music, he knew everything there was to know. And, and he was intelligent in other ways, too, but he did feel insecure. You know. um, what, and that was, I think, yeah. also contributed to uh, some of his maybe, you know, uh, personal relationships, which weren't always, uh, you know, 100% perfect. Do you, do you, you, uh, this, this Peacock's album, we need to vet this, uh, considerably, maybe, uh, at another time. I mean, I, I, when you were in a room with him producing or writing up something for Downbeat, can you talk about the kinds of questions and, and then his answers to those questions? Was it about, was it about, I mean, I, to me, I'm just, what I'm trying to get at is I know for a fact Steve, I've done a couple interviews with Steve, uh, and Stan was always puzzled and baffled as to why, whether it was Desafinado, whether it was Girl from Ipanema, why these songs became popular hits. He himself didn't even understand it. Did he even understand his genius? Did he? Is that one reason he went mad sometimes? Because he, to me, it was, I don't know, I want you to just open up about the, the what, from your perspective, this guy was, was, he had all these innate gifts, couldn't explain it, 
that's what I'm. That's what I've gathered in my research. Well, well, it's always hard for people to explain. You know what? If they have a gift like that, you know what really uh, causes it? Because it's something that you're born with, in a sense. You know. But uh, I can tell you about. I, I didn't interview Stan very often or anything, like that, but I did a blindfold test with him. Uh, you know the blindfold test. They still have it in Downbeat, you know, where you play records for a musician and you don't identify them and you get his reactions to it, right. his or her reactions. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was fun to do that. And, and he was very good. He was very perceptive. Uh, one of the things I wanted to play a little trick on him, uh, he made one record where he plays a solo on alto. Uh, it's an obscure recording. It was made under the name of the Mills Blue Rhythm Band, but it was really a studio band that was put together for a California session. And I guess they, you know, they, they called on Stan, and he had the chair was the uh, where there was an alto solo in the book, you know, so he played it. And uh, it's the only example of that on record. And it, it had been back in the 40s, and this was... Oh, in the 70s. So, so I figured he might not uh, recognize this, but he recognized it very quickly, very quickly. Unbelievable. And you know what the circumstances were. This, this, uh, this CD, has is, is it commercially released? I mean, I've been, I, I, I've been looking it up because uh, I, I saw you mention that before. Um, was there one tune with the alto or the whole album he played alto and, and is it, has it ever been? No, no, he just solos on the, on one tune and there weren't that many recorded, I think maybe four. And these were still, this is still the 78 era. It just came out as singles and they were eventually put on an LP. I think Don Schlitten put them out on the, on one of his labels, Onyx, I think it was. Uh, I, I, actually, I did the notes for it. That's how I came to remember it. But uh, that was one thing that I played for him. And you know, uh, but some other things I played. I got a very, you know, interesting and intelligent response to all the things I played. One thing I played for him was uh, Lee Konitz's version of. Uh, you go to my head. I think it's called Hugo's head, and uh, it's you know they never state the melody. And Stan's reaction to that was interesting. Uh, he said, uh, you know, he said, if you can't think of something that's better than the original melody, you should forget about it. You know. So uh, this is an example of, of what he thought of a. Uh, that's why he he was so good with things like the bossa nova things which have beautiful melodies and he respected the melody he respected the song and that's why he you know he was so good at to look at the uh, early autumn you know how that that solo you know it fits so well into the arrangement and it's so melodic and it's so reflective of uh, of the tune, you know, that, that, that was what he could do. You know, that's, that was his gift. Talking to Dan Morgan, but he was yeah. very swift with the, you know, with the answers, uh, his reactions were, were interesting. And he was, you know, I mean, part of the fact of what, what he felt about, you know, teaching college kids, he was a highly intelligent man. He was, may not have had a, a good education, but, uh, he was pretty damn smart. What what kinds of things? I mean, I know you're right, but could you give an example outside of music uh, that that made you realize that he was not just informed, but actually very bright? Yeah. Well, we would have, you know, uh, I think we did talk about politics. I don't know what was happening. You know, things were always happening. We. We live in interesting times, as the old Chinese curse has it. You know, there was always something going on. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was uh, it was in Chicago, and uh, we were actually hanging out on the beach. You know, uh, in Chicago, the beach is the lake. You know, you're right on the lakefront. <laughs> 
you, you know Chicago, don't you? That's, you know, no, you're, I know, you're only, Lake Michigan there. <laughs> yeah, it's the only city where you can, you know, you live right in the center of town and you can walk to the beach in five minutes. <laughs> it's not like an ocean beach. But, but, so uh, a bunch of us went swimming. He was actually flirting with some girl there. And that, but we were talking politics, and he was very, he, he was very good about that, you know, and uh, all in general, you know, he, he was he was uh, he was an intelligent man. He wasn't like uh, not that you know. I'm I'm not saying that uh, a lot of musicians were dopey, you know. That, that but there were people who were good at certain things, but not terribly sophisticated. But Stan was, uh, you know, he was a he was a highly intelligent person. Do you talk about his, could you just talk about his, uh, you know, his, his, the, how beautiful a person he was and the kind of, uh, uh, I don't know what the right word is, but he was, uh, I mean, women just w- were in love with him. But did you see that first? Yes. Thing? Yes. Uh, well, what, what I was just talking about there, yeah, he, he was establishing a little, you know, uh, Temporary relationship with the with the woman there who uh, uh, was very attractive, but uh, it didn't take him long, you know, <laughs> to, to succeed in seducing her, if that's what you want to call it. Uh, yes, he was, uh, you know, he was a handsome guy. He was very could be very charming, uh, and uh, you know that was one of his strong points. Uh, You, I mean, how did in charming in the sense of he just had to look into their eyes, or or he had to what did he say certain things? Yeah, no, no, but he, you know, he 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 he, uh, he knew just you know how to uh, say the right things to a woman, you know, and uh, uh, that's you know being a charmer. <laughs> Talking to Dan Morgan Stern here on the Jake Feinberg Show, having a ball. Um, did did you were you uh, privy to what he was doing on the West Coast in the fifties uh, in his small band work? I mean, did you get a chance to see him? Did you when you were working for Metronome? Did you get a chance to travel out there? Um, because he was no, I mean, I, I, I didn't not in the fifties. No, I didn't. Uh, that was before you know I got active. Uh, I really started writing. Yeah, I did start in the late fifties, uh, but uh, I didn't get to California until sometime in the sixties. Uh, the first time I went to L.A. I don't mind a festival or something. No, I didn't. I didn't catch anything live of that that part of Stan. Most of New York and Chicago was where I would see him. Also in Boston, yes. Boston. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, this is. Uh, uh, yeah. Did Did he ever play the same song once? <laughs> did he? I mean, what I'm talking about is I, I'm fascinated with this this idea of uh, melodic improvisation uh, and <clears throat> not being too formulaic. Um, it just with the ideas that were coming out of his horn, did he ever play the same solo once? Uh, you mean more than once? Yeah, is, I is mean, that yeah, what exactly. you're saying? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think he ever repeated anything. Uh, I remember, you know, since early autumn was such a hit that this was relatively early. I mean, he, he had some. Uh, prominent records before that but that was really that was a big hit for him you know it was a big hit for woody but his solo uh, became famous uh, i didn't ever hear him repeat that exactly no uh, i don't think he, he he didn't do that and there was like lester young whom he admired so much you know i mean he was a, a lester young was his inspiration, and you know the story that he left Stan Kenton's band because he had an argument with Stan about Lester. Stan apparently didn't think very highly of Lester Young, so they had this discussion about Lester, and <laughs> Stan <laughs> quit the band. 
didn't want to work for a band leader who didn't like Western. Yeah, there was also a story uh, the, the, in the Magan book. <laughs> in the Magan book, uh, I think with Kenton, um, he uh, took the um, the uh, <clears throat> you know where you the the music stand. Uh, Stan had memorized all the tunes, and he had put the stand away. And Kenton was like, "No, no, no, we don't want people staring at your shoes." Uh, you need to put that. So they had a contentious relationship. Um, yeah, yeah. What was the vibe like at Irvington? I mean, can you talk about uh, when you became, fr- especially when he was having, how much writing did you do when he was cranking on, you know, Louis Bonfa, Jazz Samba, Jazz Samba 2, J- Gets Gilberto. Can you talk about going up to the, the mansion at the peak of his popularity uh, well i don't think when i was there in irvington uh i don't think it was quite the peak as yet uh but i know that he eventually you know with the, the big bossa nova thing and you know they made him record again and again he he got he got a little bored with it after a while you know enough was enough you know uh he was looking for something different and uh but as long as it was going on, of course, it, it was very good for him financially. And uh, if he hadn't liked it to begin with, those melodies, you know, the Jacobian stuff, yeah, beautiful, and he really knew what to do with that. But he did get bored with it after a while, and that's just, you know, normal for somebody like him. He was a great musician and he needed something else to to stimulate him yeah. sure did did, did uh I, i'd love to you're one of the best people to ask about this I, you know i mean stan was a, a junkie i mean he he had serious drug problems and i wonder about if you could talk um about the culture of the jazz scene in the 50s and whether or not. I mean, we T Garden taught him to drink. What by the time yeah. he was in the Four Brothers, they were all four of them: Al Cohen, Zoot Sims, uh, and uh, Serge, and 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 Stan. They were all heroin addicts. Terry Gibbs told me that in L.A., Stan was in withdrawal, and they had to literally tie him to a bed uh, because he was r- enraged. My my question is, were you, if you weren't on junk in the 50s, that Birdland, the height, the height of the popularity of jazz in my mind, if you weren't on junk, were you not trusted? No, I don't think that's the case at all. You know, the the, the heroin thing was a curse, you know, before that. Uh, you had guys who would be drinkers and you had pot smokers and that was great. You know, I mean, uh, marijuana goes very well with music. It's Absolutely. Perfect, you know, it Absolutely. Nothing wrong with that. Diamonds. It's, it's, it's <laughs> nothing wrong. Nothing wrong with it. But, uh, but the smack, you know, the heroin that was, was really bad. Uh, it, 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 it not only did he get in trouble with the law, as it did stand at one time when he, you know, when he held up that drugstore, you know, that was a most peculiar thing to think of him, you know, doing that. But uh, well, he went. You know what's funny it, is he he it, went it, chest. It, it, yeah, he went bad, bad for everybody. But I don't think that uh, it was a matter of not trusting people who were not on junk you know there there were always usually when you had these famous bands quintets or whatever you know there was always somebody in the band who was not you know who was not a junkie who kind of took care of business and it wasn't a matter of not trusting them uh on the contrary i think uh, junkies knew that they had to rely on somebody who was straight you know to uh, to take care of at least the minimum of business. Uh, so uh, I don't think that uh, that was the case at all, no. no. Um, 
I'd love you but to. But it was so yeah. rough. You know, it was terrible for Woody Herman was one of the nicest guys I ever knew. You know, he was a wonderful guy. And he had a whole band full of junkies at one time. You know, not everybody, but he had so much trouble with these people. And you had to feel so bad for him, you know, with, with, with all that. Uh, who needs it, you know? Fortunately, it did not last that long, but it, 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 it unfortunately also killed some people. You know, we did lose some people. Was it, did it have, was there, is there validity in saying that uh, even though Bird never intended it this way because he was so far ahead sonically than anybody else that everybody was trying to get to that point and they thought that getting to using junk would help well, them get there? No, no, he made a point of telling people that that didn't have anything to do with it, that it didn't make you play better, you know, that that wasn't what made him great. And he, he told people that, you know, don't 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 think that that's going to make you, you know, make you play great. It doesn't do that for you. But, uh, you know, it was unfortunate that he sort of set the stage for that. Uh, he didn't mean to, you know, but uh, that's the way it was. How about, can you talk about the, the last, uh, the, the, how, you know, he, what's amazing about Stan in 1985, he actually went cold turkey and sobered up. And then within a year he was riddled with tumors and he could see his, um, he could see his mortality. And I wanted you to talk about how that humanized him. And and if you, if you could talk about the last memory you have of, of of interacting with him. I don't know if I would say that it humanized him, but it brought out the best in him. You know, he, he, he fought this, and, you know, he played so beautifully. That was when he and Kenny Barron did these great things together. And uh, I did seem the last time I saw him was not long before he passed, and uh, uh, I heard him, you know, uh, in a club and then went to the dressing room to see him, and... Uh, he was uh, changing, you know, so he was stripped to the waist. And I was amazed that even in that late state, you know, how strong he still was. You know, he, he having played all those years and used his, you know, his, his musculature also for that, you know, he, he was still a very uh, strong physical presence. And yet, he knew, you know, he knew that he was, didn't have long to go. And he fought that very bravely and went on playing as, as long as he could and still played beautifully to the very end. So that, you know, that, that, that really brought out the best in him. And it showed that he basically was what I always thought of him, that that he, he, you know, he he was a good person and he had a strong character. He what was, was the, not what some people yeah. thought that he was a bad guy, you know. Well, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, I want, what was the nicest thing? How do you know that he never forgot that you showed up at the boat that day? Well, because he, you know, he he mentioned it. Not every time we saw each other, <laughs> but he did mention it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I did, I did. He rem- he remembered it. I mean, this was in 1961, I guess, or something. Right uh, there, because I I'm t- uh, I'm telling you, in yeah. 61. This is what I want to talk to you about. Is in 61, uh, he had this band with Scotty LaFaro. Did you see that band? Yes, yes. Uh, the, of course, the, the last time I saw them was, uh, was I think, the last time they performed, which was at Newport, the Newport Jazz Festival, when it was still in Newport. Yes, yes. That was a big blow to Stan when, uh, when Scott uh, you know, died in that accident. That was terrible. And Scotty was such a wonderful, wonderful player. God. Do you, do you feel that, I mean, I guess the, the, the question, as best you can, I mean, I, my theory, and I, I mean, this, this takes away from, I don't think Stan was, do you feel like he was, um, 
a plotting, planning person, or did he walk because of just his natural gifts? He walked into he he was able to create vocabulary of music completely innocently, meaning that he didn't try to set things up. He didn't necessarily have these visions. It's just it was something that was a mercurial sort of innate kind of thing. I mean, whereas some people would say some people you talk to people. um, I was transcribing an interview I did the other day. Let me let me bring it up here. uh, let's see. Yeah, I mean, you know, you go back to, uh, to you know, any kind of, uh, you know, certain musicians, they had vision. They had a vision of where they wanted to go. They had a vision of what they wanted to do and the kind of players that they thought they that should play together. I feel with Stan, it was more kind of just I don't want. I don't want to say dumb luck, but I mean, it didn't. It the, he wasn't no. skiing. I don't know. You can you can you help unpack that? Uh, well, I think we have to look at things here in a certain way. He had a natural gift. He was, you know, he was a genius. There was something like you know, Louis Armstrong or Mozart. You know, that people are born with a great gift. And he had that, and it came out very early, you know. And But he didn't coast on that. Stan was a very conscious musician, you know. He, he was very aware of what he wanted to do. He chose his material very well when he was, when he was recording. He knew how to surround himself with musicians that fit in with his conception uh i never heard him with a bad group you know that when he was the leader uh he was always conscious of things like i uh, to give you an example when he played carnegie hall he always insisted on having the amplification turned off most people most jazz musicians didn't pay any attention to that Said this is Carnegie Hall. It has beautiful acoustics. I don't want any amplification. Don't want a microphone. That's, you know, that's one example. He he was very conscious of what he was doing as a musician, and that's the way he chose his repertory. He always found great songs to record that nobody else recorded. Uh, he also was a great talent spotter. I mean, he's the guy who found Horace Silver in Connecticut. You know? Unbelievable! He found he found all these yeah. Gary Burton. He found. I mean, his he all those yeah. guys. Those. I mean, you know better than me. I, I mean, Art Blakey and it's part I mean, of his strength, you know, that he was such a great player that he could surround himself with people who were strong talents in themselves, like like Horace, like Gary, you know. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't afraid of any competition. He really wanted to surround himself with people who were his his equals as far as musicality goes. He had very high standards. He you know he he knew exactly what he was doing. He wasn't somebody who you know coasted on 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 his talent. He he was uh, he he knew what he wanted. What did you think when uh, you heard? that he had uh, tried to kill himself. Oh, God, I could hardly believe it, but I just felt that he must have been, you know, extremely natural. I mean, that, 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 that sounds like a platitude that he must have been extremely depressed, you know, to get to that point. But uh, fortunately, you know. But then on the other hand, the way he fought the cancer, you know, that's the opposite what do you mean fighting the cancer aside from seeing him physically not deteriorate? I mean, like how well, much, I mean, what is that? He, yeah, go ahead. He went, he went on and, and worked and played, you know, as, as long as he could, he didn't let it, you know, there were other people who might have just said, Oh, I mean, you know, I'm going to die. So I'm going to stop, you know, whatever. But he, he went on as long as he could. And uh, he, he, he just rose to final uh, greatness at the end. You know, there wasn't any decline at all in his artistry, and that 
shows a strength of character, I think, that's uh, unquestionable. Um, if you were to, if you want, if if you were going to see the Stan Getz documentary, A Man and His Horn, what would be what would be something that you would most want to see in that film? What I would want to see is a recognition of his stature as, as, as a musician and also uh, a, uh, you know, uh, a appreciation of him as a human being, contrary to some of the things that you, you know, that you hear about him and uh, you know, uh, just to see him as a fully dimensional human being, uh, not not just a guy who played great saxophone, but, uh, you know, Stan Getz. Could you just give a glimpse into this, well, this paradigm, human being, the, hum- the human part of it? I mean, it, it, that that's what we're trying, I don't, I've gotten enough stories about Stan the devil. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I, 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 I want to put a, I want to well, make him a likable person because he was, yeah. and so well, that's what, I mean, you just, you just, I mean, we've been cooking here for almost an hour and I, I what, what kind of humanistic stuff can we pull out of this thing? Because, you know, it's like the dude's getting, you know, he's knocking the Beatles off the pop chart and he's putting his foot through the door of his home and, yeah. you know, he's getting the yeah. cops called. I mean, that's, I'm just trying to get to this idea of you just made a very, you said you wanted to see a full, a full vetting of the human being Stan gets. Can you give me some hum- humanity to, uh, to go on here? Well, I think maybe, you know, some of the things I was talking about uh, do bring that out, but, uh, have you uh, have you talked to Beverly? Have you talked to you know? Uh, I mean, uh, the family, absolutely. He, the fa- absolutely. We have, of yeah. course, of course, the family. Well, I think you know. If you it, it, this may sound corny or whatever, you know, but I think the bottom line is that nobody could make such beautiful music without also being a human being that. Uh, had beautiful qualities, you know, it, 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 it doesn't work, you know, it, it, it's not something that the devil gives to you to make beautiful music like that. Um, where is Stan gets the greatest saxophonist of all time, in your opinion? Well, he certainly is one of the greatest virtuosos of the saxophone. I mean, he, as John Coltrane said, you know, we would all play like that, sound like that if we could, you know. But uh, no question about that. But it's not just his virtuosity, the way he, you know, could handle that instrument, and uh, but, but what he put into it in terms of feeling, you know, that that that's what, made him great not the mastery technical mastery of the horn but the beauty of the melodies and the creativity that he put in there that's it 